This is Solve It for Kids. Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of All Things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids, the podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. I am excited about today's episode because we are talking about something that is happening right now and going to take a whole lot of people into a brand new future. I agree. This is going to be such an interesting podcast. What problem are we solving today? How can AI help humans with mobility? How will AI robots help human mobility? This sounds really important. Who's our guest today, Jeff? Our guest today is just the right person to be talking to. She is Dr. Brenna Argal. She is an associate professor of rehabilitation robotics at Northwestern University, and she is the director of the Argall Lab in the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab Hospital. Welcome to the show, Dr. Brenna. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is going to be a very interesting chat today, I think. I mean, we're going to talk about robotics and human mobility and all of these different things. But of course, if you've listened before, you know my favorite question is, Did you always want to study robotics when you were a kid? I can't say that I even knew robotics was something that you could study. Oh, (laughs) so the answer would be no. (laughs) I don't think I was really introduced to robotics until I actually started going to college. And I was at a college that had a university that had a lot of robots running around. And that was really my first exposure to robotics. Oh, wow. So I'm cheating a little bit because I know your bio. But I know your master's degree and PhDs are both in robotics. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners what your bachelor's is in? My bachelor's degree is in mathematics with also minors in music and biology because I was taking a lot of pre-med classes as well. I wasn't quite sure where I was going to land up. I love that. Studying math and ending up in robotics. Yes. So, of course, now we're all dying to know what got you into robotics. Did, Did you do an internship or did you just wander into a robotics classroom and be like, this is for me. (laughs) It might be even more happen chance than that. So while I was studying as an undergrad, doing my mathematics courses, I attended an applied mathematics seminar that talked about these little nanoscale sized robots that would have alligator mouths on the end of their little bodies. And you'd Uh inject them into your bloodstream and they'd swim around and they'd chew up blood clots. And I thought, this is fantastic. I'm a math major, but I'm also studying pre-med, but I'm really loath to give up the computational side of things once if I went on to medical school. So maybe just put a way to be a way to keep doing both. I'll do an MD, PhD, and I'll study medicine, and I'll also do these kind of robotics. And so I figured if I was going to do that, I should get some research experience. So I applied to an internship program 
at the National Institutes of Health for after I got my bachelor's degree. So once I was done with college, I ended up as a research assistant at the National Institutes of Health in a neuroscience lab, not because I knew wow. anything about neuroscience. Okay. <laughs> they, had a lot of, they had a lot of data to crunch and my math degree was helpful with that. While I was there, I realized I really liked research. So I decided to drop the MD part. And so then I applied to graduate school looking for medical robotics graduate wow. school. Um, and once I got into graduate school and started the program, I was talking to different advisors, different Great. people who I could study under. And when I was talking to the person who did really small robotics at that school, I found out that we don't have nanoscale robots yet, or at least we didn't then. Right. <laughs> had okay. Microscope, but we did not have nanoscale. So that seminar that I had heard was either in talking about things in simulation or in theory, and I missed it. So I made a decision based on something that didn't exist yet. (laughs) We had nanoscale robots, but we didn't 15 years ago. And so I ended up joining a lab that did robot learning and robot soccer. I wasn't a mechanical engineer. So to have my whole PhD be about making things small didn't seem to be quite the right fit. And so so I joined a lab that did robot learning and robot soccer and then and did my postdoc in Switzerland also on the topic of robot learning. And it was only once I started as faculty here at Northwestern that I started working in the space of rehabilitation or assistance. Wow. So it ended up coming all full circle, but I wasn't intending it to. I love that story though. And and we've heard this from some of our other listeners too, because you don't always like pick your discipline and then right. stick with it. Sometimes you go all these different routes, but that's so cool how you ended up here. Thank you. So when you just got into medical robotics, when you first got into it, because you've obviously been there for a little while now, when you first got into it, what level was robotics working its way in the medical world? So when I started as faculty here and started at the what was then the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, is now okay. the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, I was trying to figure out what would be this bridge between my expertise in robotics autonomy and robot learning and the field rehabilitation. The way that you see robots show up most often in the field of rehabilitation is either robots that are trying to rehabilitate the human body. So these are robots that are look like exoskeletons. They're moving moving your leg while you're doing treadmill therapy, things like that. Or they're robots that are bridging gaps in function. So these are robots that it's not that you're in therapy anymore necessarily at the hospital, but it's that you're out in the world and there's something that you'd like to be able to do that you can't any longer or maybe ever. And these robots are meant to bridge gaps in function. So the ones that you would see most often would be like a prosthetic limb. Right. We'd like exoskeletons to get there eventually. Now they're mainly used just in the clinic for therapy purposes. We'd like them to eventually be used for mobility. That's where you kind of saw robots showing up the most within this research space of rehabilitation robotics. From looking around the field of rehabilitation and where we use assistive machines, it became clear pretty quickly that there's a gap in terms of how functional the machine could be and how easy it is to control. Yes. The gap is not the mechanics of the machine. It's actually capturing the control signals from the human body to operate the machine, which is a challenge all the time, but especially when that body has motor impairments and especially when the machine itself gets more and more complicated. So a robotic arm is much more complicated to control than a wheelchair for example. Right. Right. Okay. And so this is an opportunity for robotics autonomy to maybe help out. So if the autonomy can now take over some of the controls. So if you think of 
you don't even have to go as far as thinking of driverless cars. You can think <laughs> of the driver assist functions that you have on today's cars. Right. Okay. Lane assist and parallel parking and emergency braking. If you put that kind of functionality on these assistive machines that were designed to be operated by humans, you can offload some of the control burden from the human and maybe make them more accessible, uh, maybe even accessible to people who can't be prescribed them right now. What an incredible connection to have made. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, so that leads right into kind of what we're talking about. So how will AI robots help human mobility? So can you explain some of the things you're doing with your lab to help people with the mobility that perhaps they no longer have or, you know, know, whatever they need to help them with? Absolutely. So in my lab, the kind of mobility we focus on is wheelchair mobility. So this is aren't able to use their legs the way that they would like to be able to use them to get around in the world. Now, wheelchair mobility can be challenged for two reasons. So, and both of them relate to this ability to capture control signals from the body. So it could be that you have a person who can operate one of the interfaces for wheelchair control, but they would just like to operate their chair with more safety. So I think there's actually 100,000 ER visits every year in the United States from wheelchair-related accidents. Oh my gosh. And so if you could help with things like not falling down the stairs, not falling off of a curve, not colliding with something. We've had come into my lab who have a cervical level spinal cord injury. So, which means that they're, they're paralyzed in their arms and their legs Mm -hmm. and come in with, and tell us stories about having broken fingers, like a pinky finger that they broke when going through a doorway and their armrest scraped along the side of the doorway. And they didn't even know for weeks because they have no feeling. Until oh they- my gosh, yes. So these kind of injuries can happen all the time. So if you have a sensor system on the wheelchair that can provide safety, this can help out just to make safety or driving safer for any wheelchair driver, just like right. driving safer for any car driver. I was right. just thinking that the same yeah. thing as what they're I mean, working on, on not bumping into anything. Obviously, people want that as well. Well, yeah. and, and that's not something that, you know, you would maybe you would think of. Right. Like, wow. Just think about just developing a sensor like that. Is it easy? To develop a sensor like that? (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) I I had a feeling you were going there. No. So more importantly, it is not easy to interpret a sensor like that. So even if you have data, how do you make heads or tails of it? Your sensor data can be noisy. It can be faulty for certain reasons. One of some of the sensors that we really like to use for robotics because they're pretty reliable and pretty cost effective. Mm -hmm. For example, can't see glass. And so so your sensor, you can have all these different sorts of challenges. You could have sensors. Normally we want to have redundancy in our sensors. So we want to have a a part of like, you want a part of your space that you, you're getting, it's getting picked up by multiple sensors. What if they tell you two different things? What if one of them says it's open? One of them says there's an obstacle. Oh no, that's not good. (laughs) And what I'm describing here, this is a challenge throughout robotics. It's not particular to this space. What's unique about this space is that we are still getting control inputs from the human as well. Oh. To be in the control loop. They don't want a 100% driverless car solution. And if you step in at the wrong time, if you take away control because you think you're doing the right thing, that you're helping them out, you're being safe. But if you take away control from them when they didn't want you to, you're actually making them less able instead of more able. Yes. I I could see that. I could see that. Okay. Actually, where a lot of my lab's research lies. In that balance of what right. the robot will control versus what the human will control. Yeah. 
I can when see is that. The right time to step in and in what way? How do we do this in a way that meets people's needs and expectations and keeps them safe? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And with the robotics that you're developing, obviously all people have different levels of abilities. Mm-hmm. So it's not like, oh, everyone that is paralyzed with their arms and their legs, they don't all have the same level of ability. Yep. How do you program robotics to sort of match that level? Is that in the coding and the software part of it? Or do the robotics themselves, do you have so many different levels of robotics? That's an excellent question. And it's actually still an open research question. So we know okay. that we can't have a one-size-fits-all solution for everyone. Right. But how many levels of granularity, how we map that to different people? Do we just explain right. it to them and let yes. them do we observe their driving behavior for a while and pick what mm. we do? Yeah. Ask them questions about their familiarity or comfort level with technology and how independent they want to be or what sorts of things they'd like to be 100% in control and or maybe what sorts of things their caregiver typically is in control of. If, mm-hmm. if we have some sort of a questionnaire system that will allow us to distill this all down to a match, should they be allowed to just change which how control is shared on the fly, it might lead to oh. the system's unintuitive for them. And so is oh. that to do? Or is it that it should, you know, it should still be in their hands to change it whenever they want, but under constrained circumstances. You can't just change it when you know you're in the middle of crossing the road. You have to change it when you're stopped and or maybe when you're in your home. Or these are all open, open research questions. That's a lot of complication. You know, when you think about all the complicated type coding you have to do lots of I'm just thinking lots of if then if then this if then this wow that is a lot so can you kind of explain we were talking a little earlier before the show about how you move things when you're in a wheelchair or whatever because not only like you have to go up and down curves and you have to go around things how do you steer with that is it easy (laughs) Do you do you mean how do people see or how does the robotics autonomy see? I mean, I guess either way, like at what point does the autonomous take over and kind of do things for them? And then how do the humans kind of give directions to the autonomous or did they just decide I have to go around a corner? It's just like this. Yeah, these are all also open research questions. You can imagine sort of levels of assistance where you maybe would have Probably this, the absolute simplest assistance would just be emergency stopping. So okay. I'm just not, I'm not okay. going to let you drive off of a drop-off. I'm not going to let you collide with something, but that's it. With that sort of behavior, with all these behaviors, it's always important to have a manual override because of sure. course you may have a reason for needing to do those things. You always need to have a manual override. You can imagine that that's sort of the lowest level of assistance. A step up from that would maybe be saying, okay, I'm not going to try to make any high-level inferences about where it is you want to go. I'm not going to try to write a reason about what it is you're wanting to do. All I'm going to reason about is the fact that right now you gave a forward velocity command and right in front of you is a wall. So I don't think you want it. And so I'm going to now plan a safe path around this wall that just gets you immediately to the other side of it. And so I'm not going okay. to infer anything else. I'm just going to do that. And we're going to share control the whole way. So you're going to give your, your commands, your velocity commands, and I'm just going to correct them a little bit to make sure you don't hit anything. But then we can sort of actively get you around things. I'm not only going to stop you. I'm going to give you a little bit of active assistance. Okay. The level above that, you can maybe reason about your environment and say, okay, I know doorways are tough to get through. 
And so I see that you're, it looks like you're trying to get through a doorway because you're close to it. And the control command you're giving is about aligned with it. I can see that you're probably going to scrape along the side, but probably you want to go through it. And so I'm going to adjust you to try to get through. And it's because now I have a perception algorithm running with these sensors that can identify this. And I know that that's something that's tough. So I'm going to give you some extra assistance. And I'm going to assume that your goal is right on the other side of that doorway. And then we could have even a layer above that. Let's say wow. that you're operating in a known environment like your house. And you we could maybe actually have a, a map that we've built up of the world with the center. Oh, yes. And you That's could cool. able the map so that the robot knows that this is the kitchen, this is the bathroom. And then maybe you have a menu that you can scroll through and select one of these. Or maybe we have voice recognition software running and you can say one of these. And then it can just take you there fully autonomously. Or again, shared control, where it's kind of making all the big decisions, but you're controlling speed, something like that. Wow. That's amazing. This is fascinating in that the programming that you're talking about is is so high level and complicated, but the way you're describing it, you're actually breaking down literal human movement and function into individual movements of when you were describing, okay, it looks like there's a doorway in front of you. You gave a command that wants to kind of go through there. Thinking about, so you and your team and your labs team, thinking about the most simplest function and then translating that all the way up to the very highest level of robotics that are available right now to connect those two in the middle to make the functionality. This is fascinating. Yeah. How quickly are advances being made? that are allowing you and your team to add more functionality? I don't think that our limitation right now is what the field can do. I think that we, you know, there is windfall to be had from the fact that there's so much going on in terms of driverless car technology and also the autonomous like last mile delivery technology. In the sense, that's meaning that there's more algorithms out there. Sensors are getting a lot cheaper. So there are windfalls to be had from those areas. But that all relates to just getting the robotics autonomy working, which is that would be if the wheelchair could just drive itself autonomously everywhere. And really, the the devil in the details in this work is the integration with the human. And you just work with the system and work with end users to do that. So it isn't that suddenly, you know, an algorithm comes out and it solves your answer or it gives you. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yes. It's that you have to run end user studies and you have to get feedback from actual users and you have to find out, you have to deploy these things. You know, right now we only test in the lab. That's not the same environment as testing out in the real world. That's not a lab study that looks at how people's familiarity with the technology changes over time. Right. That's just kind of the elbow grease work that we can't really get around. It's got to be done. Yeah. Those humans always get in the way. Yeah. Always. (laughs) Well, so that's my question though. So do you have humans, people that need mobility help that come into the lab and so work with you? And then do you set them up with the specifics that they want for their own individual wheelchair? Yeah. The way that we execute our science, it's not that we take one individual and try to find an optimized solution for them. Okay. We're still at the level where we are thinking like, okay, here are one, two uh, options, A, B, and C for how we ah, could. Okay. We're going to bring in a bunch of different people who are wheelchair users. 
Yes. And we're going to see how their performance is with A, B, and C. And we're going to see how, what their opinions are of A, B, and C. Right. Okay. Kind of trends with the kind of interface they use on their own chair and how they feel about A, B, and C. And how familiar they are with technology and how they feel about A, B, and C or what right. level of injury they have. And, and so we're still at the level of trying to synthesize information in that regard. And then once we're on the other side of this and we have a lot more of that information, we'll be able to start asking those questions about how to optimize it to, for a given individual. Wow. Okay. It sounds like so much data is <laughs> yeah. coming in. Yeah, you must really like time. math. There's, there's got to be a lot of math in here. <laughs> <There it> is. <laughs> so moving forward, something you mentioned right at the beginning when you were talking about where you got started on the robotic exoskeletons. Mm-hmm. I have seen a video, and forgive me for starting a sentence with a question with, I saw a video one time, <laughs> that wheelchairs, there may be a future potential for wheelchairs to sort of transform into being able to stand that person up mm-hmm. to maybe have an interaction and then sit back down to do the movement. Mm-hmm. Is that real technology right now? So there are standing wheelchairs that get developed within research wow. and that move transition people from sitting to standing, which you okay. can imagine that that has a couple of different advantages. So one is that it can have physiological advantages, that it's healthy for your body and your organs to be right. Upper. It can, and for your legs to bear some load and, and all these sorts of things. Another is that a lot of interactions we have as humans happen like standing height. Yes. Just sure. like everyone else is standing and you're sitting, it's a, it has social implications. And also a lot of our environments have things at standing height. So if you need to get things out of the cupboards in the kitchen and things like that, but our environment right. is designed for humans and humans often are standing. Yes. And so that's why a technology like that would be of interest. And there are actually, I know of work being done with both power wheelchairs and manual wheelchairs to try to create a sit-to-stand version of wheelchairs. Wow. Okay. So I want to talk about the human component of this. You know, did you realize when you got into this how much you could help people? How does it make you feel to create these things? Because just hearing about it, I'm like, wow. I mean, you, you know, this would be so amazing that your work is really changing people's lives from what I can tell. I think that that aspect of it continues to grow and deepen over time as we make new connections, both inside and outside of the hospital with new end user groups. I have a group that I'm collaborating with now that are affiliated with the Team Gleason Foundation that are called the A-Team. And these are all people who are living with ALS who have tech backgrounds. So they maybe were programmers or engineers. And so... And talking with them, they and they're a really unique group because they both understand the technology and understand what it is to live with this degenerative disease and to be right. right. They provide this excellent bridge between these two worlds. And you know, their insights on what a piece of technology that we're considering developing, the impact that it could have in their lives. When you make those sorts of connections, the more and more you incorporate new perspectives, the deeper all of that becomes. Yes. That's wonderful. And that's one of the things we talk about a lot on the show, don't we, Jeff, about all yes. of about all of the connections, how science and technology is not a singular type thing. The more people that are collaborating, the better that you get the results and the, the better the results and whatever you create is because of that. I really love the answer you just gave on that yeah. connection with the humanity. 
I really feel like a lot of times, especially younger listeners, kids and students, you hear robotics and they're thinking autonomous robots, whether they're Android-like robots or Roombas going around. (laughs) And we don't really think, even the driverless cars, where the whole concept is to the driver is only going to be the passenger now. They're just going to be in the car, not part of the equation. But the way you've described this entire work that you're doing of robotics, it really is a meshing, a melding of the human interaction and capability with the robotic Mm -hmm. interaction and capability. When you hear like, oh, robots are going to take over the world. I'll work in <laughs> robotics and you're a PhD in robotics. Does your brain sort of translate that in a different way than I think a lot of people out there are? <laughs> Maybe not the science fiction movie style, but how robots are more going to help humans move forward? Yeah, I think my brain translates that in two ways. So one is that we are so very far from that being any. <laughs> That's good to know. That's good to know. I used to say all the time in graduate school, like, I wish my robot was smart enough to hate me, but it doesn't. (laughs) It can't figure out how to move through the door. And so partly it's that, how how very far away we are and how difficult it is. Like, it is so difficult for us to get robots to do what we want them to do. Yes. Right. Intentionally suddenly start doing what we didn't think they were doing in a way that we kind of can't control. I mean, it's just, it's so far away that it's inconceivable for the time. I love that. And then the second, of course, is I think what you're, you were more getting at with your question is that I see this potential for robotics to play this supporting and uplifting role right. in like humanity. That. Yes. There's all these, I mean, we already have machines everywhere. And right. so the idea that we can make machines more intelligent and make the way that they interact with humans more intelligent and create machines that just They don't exist today because they don't make sense unless they're intelligent, but they can provide all this assistance if they do that. I think that there's all of this untapped potential and it doesn't need to be that they have human level intelligence. I think of robots in a very physical, mechanical, how do you actually move way? But you need to have intelligence when you figure that out. If you figure that out, even if whether it's whether or not it's just how do you navigate a crowd in like socially normative ways. Sure. Yes. There's all these different sorts of ways of what intelligence can mean. But in the end, it's really just that you're driving a wheelchair. It's not trying to do anything that is more cognitive than that. Right. Right. Not that sort of risk. But it's also, I mean, again, it's extremely important to provide this help. And it, you know, like you, it changes people's lives, what you're doing, because if they can themselves feel more autonomous because they're using this wheelchair, then that makes them healthier, happier, you know, that makes a greater kind of experience for them. Okay. So we could talk about robotics and AI forever, but this has been really, I've learned so much about this and this is, I'm going to learn more. So all of you kids go out there and and look up the studies, but now I'm curious because we're at that time in our show where I'd like to find out what challenge do you have for our listeners? What challenge do you have, Dr. Brenna? Okay. So my challenge In the space that I work in, I mentioned how it is difficult to capture control signals from the human body. So if you are someone with a severe motor impairment, if you are paralyzed from the neck down, for example, the interfaces that are available to you to drive your powered wheelchair or to operate a robotic arm tend to be what we call one-dimensional interfaces, maybe two, which means that 
I can control one dimension of movement at a time. So for a wheelchair, I could, I can maybe control what way I'm turning and I can control my speed with the second dimension. For a arm, if you are just trying to position the hand of the arm or the gripper of the arm in 3D space, it's actually, you have to actually specify six things. So there's the position in 3D and there's the orientation in 3D. And so that means that now you have to control six things in order to just position this hand in the world. And we don't have any good interfaces for doing that besides putting a bunch of sensors on my own arm and hand. Okay. The joystick, that's typically two dimensions, maybe three if you twist the joystick. And that means that you need to do what we call partition the control space. You can only move forward and back at a time. You can only move left, right. You can only move up, down. And if you want to switch between from up, down control to left, right control, you have to push a button, maybe push a button a couple of times to cycle through all these different control modes. Oh, wow. And then that's how you operate it. And that's not even operating the hand, trying to open and close the gripper. So that's what it looks like to try to operate these assistive machines with these very limited interfaces that are available to people with severe motor impairments. So I want you to imagine, my challenge is that I want you to imagine what it would be like to operate your own arm in this way. So what I want Uh you to do, your arm down at your side. I want you to put your hands into a robot gripper. So have all of your fingers stuck together and all you can do is move all your fingers together or all of your thumb. That's all you can do. I want you to put your arm down at your side and I want you to go in front of a table and there's something on the table that you want to pick up. Okay. And I want you to try to move your arm to that position to pick something up by only moving up, down, or left, right, or forward, back, one at a time. And you have to intentionally switch between wow. these. Wow. So you can first try to move your arm up, then you can move it forward a little. If now you've cleared the table, you can move it left, right, but you're only allowed to move in one direction at a time. And then when you go to grab whatever it is, and same thing with rotating. So if you need to reposition your hand at all, if it's in the right position, but it's not in the right orientation, you have to, again, rotate one at a time in these three axes. Wow. Wow. In order to grip it, all you can do is pinch all your fingers together. You can't make a fist. You can't pinch just two. You can't do like an okay symbol. You can't do anything like that. All you can do is take all of your fingers and put them together. And I want you to start out doing that with something that's easy, like a cup. And then I want you to think about harder and harder tasks. What does it look like to pick up a pencil? What does it uh, look like to pick up some keys and try to turn them in a lock? And think wow. of things. What would it look like to try to brush your own teeth, to comb your own hair? Wow. If, oh, wow. That was the way that you could do hygiene. And so what would it look like to try to feed yourself a meal? Uh, and remember, you can only use one at a time, too. One at a time. Can can you curl your fingers or can you only have them close like like a like kind of like a clamp? Robotic hands. No, there, there's normally with this commercial robotic arm that's meant to be mounted to powered wheelchairs, it's compliant. So it actually has it looks like this. It's got two fingers and a thumb, but you can you can only open and close it all together. So it's not that you can operate each one at a time. And there's oh. one joint or maybe two joints in it but it's just, it's compliance. So basically it'll always close to this position. So if you needed to grasp something that's smaller than this, you can't um, wow. grasp something bigger than that. It will kind of wrap around it because there's a little bit of give a little bit of flex. Okay. Wow. I think this is going to give our yeah. listeners a chance to 
pay attention to how much we move in three dimensions yes. without consciously thinking about it. Yes. Yes. I think that's a great challenge and something for all of us to think about too, and kind of, you know, understand the coding that you must have to do to go into <laughs> all of this. Well, again, this has been a fantastic episode. Yes, I have learned wonderful so much. Thank you so much for being on Salt for Kids, Dr. Brenna. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun too. Awesome. I feel like we hear every day how much AI is going to change our world, but listening to Dr. Brenna talk about just how much AI is going to directly help these people who need it, this is going to be fascinating to watch. Absolutely. I think the idea of this is just amazing. And AI can do so many different things. We're seeing it come into all of these different aspects of Absolutely. life. Absolutely. Why can it help people like this as well? This is fantastic. I am so excited for this. And what about that challenge of this Dr. Brennan? This challenge is going to yeah. be great. I really hope we see a video or some videos from some listeners about moving in controlled dimensions, yep. but only one dimension at a time. I right. don't think any of us that are fully able-bodied pay attention to just how much we move in all three dimensions at the same time. And we're not gonna notice it until Dr. Brenna's challenge for us takes away two of those dimensions and exactly. we have to follow her yep. rules and only move up and down, left and right, forward and backward. Exactly. So make sure that you go to our website, solveforkids.com, where you can see the video of Dr. Brenna as she's demonstrating what you have to do and how you have to do it. And also, if you do try out this challenge, you can send us a video or just let us know how it worked for you. You can tag us on our social media. We are at KidSolve at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We would love to hear from you. And also, we will have more information about Dr. Brenna's lab also on our website page, SolveItForKids.com. So be sure to check that out. We are all going to have a much better appreciation of living and moving in three dimensions after this. Until next time, you'll hear Jen and Jeff on Solve, Solve It For, for Kids. Kids.